Okay, exciting. Hey, uh, Yui, it's been a while since we talked. It was November last year, I think, huh? Yeah, it was. Uh, so obviously your inflation video came out only, what, a couple of weeks ago or something like that. But we actually had the conversation in November. So a lot has happened since then, right? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I had to defend you in uh, in the comment section like once or twice because... You said something like, oh, inflation seems to be going down. And that was, I think it was even the beginning of November. And then uh, that changed. But besides that, I, I don't think it was too horrible having done it in uh, November. What, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with the, the critiques. I mean, you know, making predictions is a bit of a, a fool's game, really, isn't it? Uh, but I, at the time that I, we recorded it, it looked like inflation had been going down based on the, the monthly figures in the US. Uh, but actually what happened is as soon as I said that, of course, it went straight back up. Um, and now the monthly figures, I think the most recent ones are December in the US, and it seems to have gone up to an annualized rate of over 7%. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely crazy. I'm just checking if uh, <laughs> people are saying I'm in an or orchestra building. I think that's because I'm in a new new house. And uh, the sound is still a bit horrible here with uh, without a lot of furniture, which I can't afford anymore due to all of that inflation, of course. But let's uh, yeah. let, let's talk inflation, um, UE. Like if you look back, you know you obviously watched the video, so I'm I'm thinking we didn't mess up too badly, even though uh, inflation persisted. But the thing is, and, and I think we mentioned that when we spoke, is we we defined transitory very importantly as having to do with the pandemic. And at the start of November, we didn't know about Omicron yet. And, you know, the Netherlands even went into a full full lockdown again uh, for two months. Yeah, I, th I think the question of what transitory means is really important, right? And I guess I did say that, like we said earlier, I did say that inflation might go back down soon. But then we had Omicron and it didn't. And, you know, a lot of the things that have been driving inflation... Uh, you know, the bottlenecks in supply chains, for example, were, you know, exacerbated and inflamed once again. So I think it's our kind of framework was definitely defensible and I think basically correct, even if some of the specifics of, you know, the predictions maybe were a little bit premature. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think about the, the position that we, we had then, uh, has it changed for you? Like transitory, team transitory? Have you moved at all? Um, I've moved in thinking, yeah, in, in the length of time that I, I think this will go on for. I do, I do reckon we'll have kind of high-ish inflation for, you know, maybe a total of a year or more. I think I perhaps, I thought it was just kind of a one-time bump because, you know, there were these issues of... Um, the kind of one-time jumps in inflation after lockdown ended, right? And perhaps I kind of overestimated that side of things. And then I um, kind of underestimated probably issues like supply chain bottlenecks, which I think are actually a little bit more deep-rooted than, than we thought. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, so I have actually moved a little bit towards permanent as well. But on other issues, more that, um, you know, when we did the video, we were saying like, expectations, you can't see anything. Now, I think in expectations, you, you can see because, and that's normal, right? Because it's been going on for, for longer. So it makes more sense that, that expectations also move upwards. And I, I did see some sort of more um, evidence, especially in the United States, that, that um, the labor market was getting tighter. And I think it's also very interesting that the discussion moved more towards sort of the, the wage uh, price spiral. Mm. I think that's still a bit premature, but, but I have moved a little bit towards seeing that, okay, it, that, that wasn't where it originated, but it is maybe here and there starting to feed into that. What do you think about that? Do you think that inflation is starting to feed into a, a wage and price spiral? I, maybe that's a bit strongly put, but I can... Yeah. I, I, could see that people are now getting more worried about that danger. And I, I wouldn't say like, oh, uh, for that reason, hike rates insanely uh, and let's shut down the economy. Not like that. But like here in Belgium, especially, I do see like energy prices are, are a big 
especially a big uh, problem here in Belgium. And I do think you can start seeing that now in sort of businesses like bars. I was at a restaurant yesterday and it does make sense that they will start hiking their prices a little bit as well. You know, if the energy bill goes up by 50%. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's, I mean, it varies from country to country, right? I think it's it's worth saying that, you know, so may, perhaps making these general statements is a bit too difficult, really, and we should stick to country by country. I mean, in the UK, I know that median wages have been rising faster than they were before, but they are still below, just below inflation. So I think they're like... 4% or something, they've risen median wages, whereas uh, inflation has been kind of more about 5% or more, uh, mm. an annualized rate. So I think not a sign of a wage price spiral, as I would put it, uh, but I do agree with you that it's definitely something that we need to be concerned about. And it's it's how, you know, transitory inflation turns into permanent inflation, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and I'm just wondering, like, the one problem that I, I have with it is that we don't have too, ma- too many historical or easy historical comparisons, I think, to this, where you have such a massive supply chain disruption. Well, perhaps the wars uh, are, are a historical comparison um, that then starts, takes so long that it feeds into, into you know, wages and prices. Yeah, yeah, it is true that there's there's not really a precedent i mean and the concerning thing is like while there's not too much of a historical precedent i do feel that this might be something that we see repeated in the future right uh if we see you know perhaps more pandemics or we see you know the effects of climate change these kinds of supply chain disruptions so i think we need to figure it out i mean the wartime analogy is probably the closest one I have seen, I mean, there's whole there's this whole debate about MMT <laughs> that's going on at the moment, right? I yeah. don't know if uh, if we want to get into it or if we want to swerve it. No, but, no, I uh, think I think it would be good because it would yeah. I think it would be good to to go into a little bit how the debate around this um moved forward while we were editing <laughs> that <laughs> massive video. Um yeah. and, and I think there are two two or at least I have seen two important parts of this debate. One is the MMT one that you just mentioned. I think that was going on like last week. So maybe go into that first. And then uh, before that, but perhaps a little bit related, was a massive debate about price controls, right? Um, and, and and now also price controls versus wage controls. But So so let's go into MMT first. I think that's a good, a good idea. Yeah. Let's get the people Sorry, up I'll to just, speed. Uh, on, on the subject of um, MMT, yeah, so it's been such a massive debate. I mean, there was this whole idea, right, about whether government debt matters and whether governments can just spend. So modern monetary theorists say, well, governments can spend as long as there's the real resources available, and the only limit is inflation. Uh, yeah. And I think over the course of 2021, they kind of won that framing. And when governments were spending loads during the pandemic, right, you had not too many people being concerned about government debt in the same way they were, for example, I don't know, uh, after 2008, when Obama was trying to pass stimulus. So they seem to have won that debate and that framing, at least temporarily, during 2021. Um, But now what you have is you actually have inflation, right? So now people are saying, well, okay, you were right that this constraint is inflation, but look at all this inflation. We've reached it. So maybe the expansionary policy wasn't such a great idea, or maybe, you know, we've it, it was partially a great idea, but we've got we've gone too far with it. Yeah. Um so it's been a really interesting shift of focus. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what, what you think of it um and whether you agree with that MMT view. Yeah, so for me, MMT is, has always been a bit difficult because I never, I've never taken the time to properly dive into it. Um, so I just I saw some people in the chat like saying, "What's MMT? MMT is modern monetary theory," and it was really like a reaction to sort of the the very simplistic view that the government uh, always needs to tax first, basically, to, to be able to do some spending, mm-hmm. right? And modern monetary theory came in and turned it upside down, like you said. Um, sort of 
came very much with this political messaging that you can always spend as a government your own money as long as there isn't inflation. And if you overspend, then you'll see that in inflation, right? But what, what I thought was interesting is that I've seen, I've, I also follow some opponents from MMT. So I also follow some uh, Austrian economists on Twitter. And, and I think that's, I saw someone saying, you know, MMT is like the Austrians on the, on the left, basically, in the sense that they're more sort of about storytelling and less about formal modeling. Um, but this Austrian guy said like, yeah, MMT was right. But what they're now doing is what I always predicted is they're not saying now, okay, now we have inflation, now we should stop spending. And I thought that was an interesting critique. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I kind of sympathize with that point of view a little bit because my interpretation of MMT, and I, I'm probably a bit like you in the sense that I, I wouldn't regard myself as an expert on MMT. You know, I, I engage with MMT quite regularly, but mostly in the form of kind of blog posts, papers. I haven't read, for example, The Deficit Myth. I haven't read, for example, the um, macroeconomics textbook uh, done by some MMTers. So I haven't delved into it in that much depth, but still probably, you know, enough, I think, that I should have, if they're any good at communicating MMTers, I should probably have a decent idea. And my interpretation was, well, let's, uh, you know, let's spend until we get inflation. And then once we get inflation, we tax, right? Mm -hmm. um, or perhaps some other non-interest rate measures. Some MMTers have talked about, you know, regulation and things like that. But now what we're getting is we've spent until we've got inflation, and but nobody's advocating tax. And then I saw, you know, Stephanie Kelton said, oh, well, we actually didn't say that we should tax <laughs> when, yeah. when inflation is high. And you get, you know, I, that, that's I actually, not true, right? For the record, what's that? Sorry? That's not true, right? That, that's very strange. Yeah. No, they, they definitely said that. Like yeah. that was... That was the whole thing, inflation, like you control inflation with taxes. And I always thought, by the way, I didn't think that was a very good policy because I don't think taxes are a good tool for controlling inflation. I feel like a lot of taxes would actually tend to increase prices. But anyway, mm. you know, regardless of what you think, that it seems like a, there's a bit of an inconsistency here. And yeah, I, this is, it, it gives me some sympathy with, you know, the kind of, monetarist or Austrian or Chicago types who kind of said, well, we warned you about inflation and now it's happening and you don't care. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me a little bit of uh, sort of the Keynesians in the sense that, uh, and, and this is because before the stream started, uh, someone was already in the chat and was saying like, hey, you know, if um, this inflation proves Keynesians were wrong. And I think that's actually the opposite in the sense that Keynesian, the, the Keynesian theory is like stimulate, or at least a new Keynesian, stimulate through interest rates until you get inflation. And then what happens? You know, hike interest rates. And I think MMT is very comparable to that, but they just say, no, 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 don't look at interest rates, look at taxes or government spending in general, right? So it's, it's like, if there's not enough inflation, MMTers say spend more. And new Keynesians say lower the interest rates or do a lot of quantitative easing. And then if there is inflation, which there is now, Keynesian theory would say, okay, now is the time to hike rates, stop quantitative easing. And MMT would say, I, I suppose, uh, raise taxes. Yeah, exactly. And I guess new Keynesians, that has been the policy, right? To when the economy is running hot, as people say, you just increase interest rates and then, you know, you somehow lower demand. And it seems that MMT, it, it doesn't seem to have a coherent response to inflation. And I think one of the things as well is that even if it does, in theory, it's not institutionalized. And I think now it's not clear exactly what we want to do. And MMTs are saying, don't raise interest rates. Again, a view which I have some sympathy with. I mean, I want to say, you know, I've got sympathy with the view that I don't mind inflation being a bit higher. If, if that's the price of kind of higher growth and a good recovery, right? I don't mm -hmm. mind inflation being a bit higher. And that can be good for debt as well, right? It can be erode real debt balances and things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, I think specifically yeah. in the video, you said 4%, right? I think you said 4%. Said, yeah, you got some flack for that something. in the comments. People were like, oh, 4%, yeah. it's much too high. 
that's 4% is not that high. I don't think people realize how low 2% is like historically. I don't know what you think of that. I feel like, I mean, it's actually, it's actually a, a position I've seen espoused by some monetarist types to say we should have a 4% inflation target because it just, 2% might just be too restrictive and you end up choking off coveries, recoveries a little bit too soon. So well, I don't know. Do you, what do you think of a 4% inflation target? Yeah, so... I've had a lot of discussions about this um, and I often come across as sort of, you know, being pro uh, sort of loose monetary policy um, because I often discuss with, you know, Austrian economists who I, I disagree with theoretically. Um, and so I end up sort of defending the other side. But but personally, I th- I'm really for price stability in the sense that I think it's really good for people f- from all parts of society that they have a stable unit of accounts. So, and I'm not sure if, like, I know the, the, the 2% is, is the target rate, and I think that's better than 4%, but, you know, maybe zero, right? If you can ever pull that off, is, isn't really such a bad thing. Especially since, yeah, I know that the argument is like, oh, but inflation helps people who are in debt, but banks um, adjust their interest rates to inflation, right? So I, I'm, I'm, I wonder if that's really... The case if it's sort of already in the expectation of banks, does that make sense? Yeah, I suppose it depends on how how much of debt is kind of variable uh, rate and how much is fixed rate, right? I mean, I think my understanding, at least again specific to country in the UK context, a lot of mortgage debt is actually fixed rate, and so yeah, like um, I don't think it adjusts that smoothly, but. Maybe no, no, I mean, there's time, a difference right? between a temporary change and a, a permanent change, right? If the inflation target was 4%, then it, it might adjust more readily or it might be inbuilt into the, into the loan in the first place. Yeah, yeah. But okay, uh, getting back to the MMT controversy. Yes. So, so I guess the controversy was twofold, right? One was uh, people were saying MMT, haha, MMT was wrong. Other people were saying, no, no, actually MMT was right because this is what they predicted. And then sort of the, the, the third argument I discovered was like, oh, but then we told them they wouldn't actually raise taxes. And I think on that last one, we agree. Uh, and we also, I guess, sort of feel that MMT was correct in the sense that, or at least this inflation is not at odds with what they predicted. No, it's not, it's not at odds with what they predicted. Uh, but I think... You know, being a bit more transparent about, you know, this was going to cause inflation and we're actually okay with that. Um, And, you know, with the caveat that inflation is, I think, still transitory, where we're defining defining transitory for, you know, as long as the pandemic kind of um, continues. And I guess we can discuss how long that is and whether that's forever. Uh, But I I feel like, you know, it, it seems like there's been a bit of a shift in rhetoric from the MMT crowd. And I say that, you know, again, as somebody who basically agrees with all of the policies that have been put in place, uh, I just I just feel that it risks discrediting, you know, active fiscal policy and things like that if you if you don't um acknowledge, you know, some of the issues and like stay consistent on your position. Yeah. And uh, but I did see just now in in my chat like somebody did say that um MMT sort of uh, stresses that inflation comes from uh, uh, the supply side in, in the sense that it's not flexible or that it at least can come from that. Uh, and I think that's also the argument that I saw some people like Stephanie Kelton, I think, uh, use, if I interpret it correctly, that no, no, the reason why we're not um, advising tax hikes right now is because you have these temporary supply shocks and they are the main driver of inflation now, which you know, I guess uh, is consistent. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is. I suppose the question for me is, what do we actually do about that? Right? Do we kind of ride the inflation out and hope that you know the supply chains are going to readjust when the pandemic is kind of quote unquote over? Again, maybe there won't be an over. Is is that what we do? Or do we do um, more active kind of something like almost like an industrial policy, right? I mean, I've seen some people from the MMT crowd and, you know, the MMT kind of adjacent people 
talk about that, talk about some kind of active industrial policy, uh, you know, kind of supply side uh, government spending that aims to expand the capacity of the economy. Uh, mm. I mean, I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, that, that, but that will take time, right? Like where are supply bottlenecks, mainly in uh, chips, uh, transistors, um, and I, I get the impression a lot of stuff that's coming from Asia. Like how long will it take to, to build up supply in that? If you're a government, it will take years, right? So I, I wonder, you know, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like if that will help. No, no, put yeah, I, not, not in the short term. No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, you're not going to suddenly start producing, you know, microchips in a location where they, they didn't produce them before, right? Or, you know, uh, certain types of cars or uh, anything kind of high tech. You can't just can't do that. I mean, MMT is, an, and a lot of people, including me, would make the point that the pandemic probably exposed that a lot of our supply chains aren't resilient yep. in the sense that we may be too reliant on, like, you know, uh, just one, one country or a very small number of countries. Uh, and, and that's absolutely true. But, you know, the question of what to do in the short term, um, I think, has not really been satisfactorily answered by, by anybody, by the way. Uh, I, so, yeah, I mean, supply chains, industrial policy is a long-term policy, if you can get it right. Uh, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, people talk about raising rates in the short term, right? Uh, but MMTers aren't too fond of that. I actually think that's a good bridge into to the next sort of controversial discussion that we haven't talked about in our inflation video, but has since happened. And that is uh, some supply side policies, but or no, maybe supply side policies is the wrong word, but um, price controls. There was a massive <laughs> debate around price controls. Um, I think we should should maybe talk about that a little bit, but first maybe we can sort of take some questions from from both of our streams and and then move on to that discussion. How does that sound? Yeah, that's a good idea. It's a good opportunity to say to chat. Uh, you know, we have two, arguably three chats on the go here, so maybe uh, uh, sorry that we we can't you know talk to each other and also constantly have conversations with you. Uh, but we're going to stop every so often to answer some of the questions. Planned economy is the answer, someone in my chat. I would have expected that in your chat. Depends how much planning you're talking about, right? Yeah. In one sense, we have a planned economy now because we have central banks and we have active government policy, you know. Um, we even have some price controls. Uh, so that degree of planning, sure. I mean, I think that's inevitable and, and good or can be good. But uh, an entirely planned economy... Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. So you're not a communist, Yui. I think uh, some people in uh, in my comment section also wondered that. Not in this stream, but uh, under the video. Yeah, I mean, you know, going going back to some of the proposals that I've seen from from um, MMTs about managing the economy, they do seem like quite extensive programs of price controls. And it, it relates to the war analogy you, you were speaking about earlier, right? Like, because that's during the war, the way that inflation, not to mention, you know, everything else was managed was through rationing, uh, right? And mm -hmm. I guess MMT is some of them, some of the time might say that the pandemic and perhaps the climate crisis too is it, kind of similar to a war. We should be on a war footing and we should be rationing in a similar way. Uh, but perhaps temporarily rather than as a permanent policy. I mean, there's there's a, an article by um, Nathan Tankus and Rohan Gray where they talk about this in uh, the Financial Times Alphaville blog, and they talk about their kind of policies for managing inflation uh, during the Green New Deal. This is all pre-pandemic, by the way. Mm. Uh, and they also released a full report. I don't know if you saw this, Yuri. No, uh, so this is Nathan on FT Alphaville as well by Nathan no, no, Tankus. The full report is on um, Nathan Tankus's Substack, and it's like mm. a 40 to 50 page report on basically how to manage inflation without interest rates, uh, without mm. interest rate management, uh, or without solely interest rate management. But uh, I haven't had a chance to delve into it completely uh, yeah. yet, but uh, it's, it contains a lot of ideas. And I think a lot of them are, I wouldn't call it central planning, but they're quite heavy in terms of the amount of intervention uh, that would take place. 
Interesting. I can't just find find it easily, but uh, I think I'll share it under the under the stream once we we we're done talking. Hey, I had a question from the um, the chat that that might be interesting, and that that is about China. And there's I also had a question from someone um, before that about exactly the same subject. Like there's this may uh, sort of story that China was exporting deflation for the longest time, right? Mm. So the idea being. Um, there, there was this massive labor force that, that that wasn't working, coming into sort of the global uh, workforce, and that drove down wages everywhere uh, when production moved to China. Um, but now, I think there are some signs that the situation is shifting there, in the sense that wages are rising uh, in China. Might that actually sort of contribute to global inflation, you know, going up again? Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I've heard this argument before. It's a really, really interesting one, um, and it kind of it kind of takes the credit away from Western central banks, right, for taming inflation. Because people talk about the Great Moderation and, and taming inflation for like you know uh, a couple of decades or, or even more uh, with inflation targeting. But if it's just been the rise of China. And a lot of consumer goods basically having extremely low labor costs and therefore low prices, uh, then it seems like it actually might be global factors kind of outside our control, our immediate control at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it is worth asking, you know, to what extent does inflation within, say, the USA depend on imports from China, right? Because I think while the US and the West import a lot of things from China. There are also a lot of things that are produced either in other countries or or, or at home. Um, so I just wonder if we might risk overstating that a little bit. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what, what you think of that. Yeah, so it, it also gets me thinking, like, if that's true, I think it is a plausible story that wages are now rising in China. China has, to a certain extent, caught up. Um, and... Um, that might put some more inflationary pressure on, but I'm wondering, like the way that global sort of commerce works, doesn't that then just give an opening to other countries? I mean, there's still billions of people uh, living below, you know, uh, I'm not sure if, if they're living below the poverty line, or, or but at least being very poor um, with very low wages. So, so that could be that a new China will rise, and then boom, we again have this deflationary trend com- coming from the new China, so to say. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on how big these countries are. Obviously, China was, you know, a massive source of of, um, deflationary pressure because of its size. Um, And I guess how how willing and able uh, these countries are to kind of, you know, produce those same goods. I mean, I don't know. There could be an argument that global standards you know, surrounding wages, uh, you know, things like minimum wages, um, as well as working conditions have risen, uh, which I do think would be a good thing, by the way, even if it causes inflationary pressure in rich countries, I have to I have to say that. So yeah, I mean, I, the, the honest answer is I'm not I'm not really sure to what extent is China and to what extent it will continue. Hey, and uh, do you have some questions in, in your chat? Or should we move on to the explosive uh, price controls debate? Um, um, so I'm just checking through the chat. Uh, can somebody explain briefly what MMT is? So let's let's do that. It's always worth <laughs> saying that again. So MMT it stands for Modern Monetary Theory. It is a kind of heterodox set of ideas which has gained a lot of prominence uh, over the past decade or so. And uh, MMT is basically advocate usually more expansive fiscal policy. Governments doing more. Uh, more expansive monetary policy as well. Governments kind of basically printing money to finance their own spending. And it says that government debt isn't something we need to worry about. Um, and uh, all we need to worry about is inflation if the if the economy runs too hot. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, that's what MMT is in short. Do you think that was an okay definition, Yuri? Yeah, it sounds it sounds good to me. But again, I think we both still need to to dive into MMT uh, a little bit more mm. to be super got, confident about it. I've got a lot of people talking about Japan. What does the inflation of Japan not really affecting economic growth say about the worry of inflation in the West? 
Yeah, so I, d- I did this big video on Japan, and I, I think Japan has also mm, been featured in, in our video uh, quite heavily, right? In the sense that Japan always presents this conundrum to, to all theories, in the sense that, you know, they did the massive monetary policy expansion, deflation. They did the massive fiscal expansion, although, okay, that, that one is, is, you know, a bit more controversial if they actually did that. But government debt at least went up like crazy. No inflation. And one argument that Team Permanent brought forward is that now we're going to see this aging and that's actually going to lead to inflation rather than deflation because now you have a lot of people who are older and who are going to spend more and who are leaving the workforce, hence sort of driving up wages and reduced saving compared to spending. So that's actually a big argument for for team permanent, but but again, they get also into trouble. Like that didn't happen in Japan, and then they say, "Well, but Japan moved production to Southeast Asia, and now we can't do that anymore." But yeah, I wonder if that's true. So Japan's basically just problematic for almost anybody's theory of the world. I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. Although, yeah. I mean, you did see a lot of the same dynamics uh, later, especially in Europe, but also uh, in the states. Uh, before this pandemic happened, and we we again have inflation, of course. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know too much about Japan, uh, but that that sounds pretty plausible based on the little I do know. Um, I mean, there's the old economist joke, isn't there? Uh, being an economist joke, I'm going to warn you, it's not very funny. But they say there's like three types of economies, right? Develop, developing, developed, and Japan, because uh, it's just like such an anomaly. Yeah. Then there's just just one more question that I have here, which is, uh, you know, what about if money is going offshore or moving to other countries? Uh, what does it do to an inflation rate in our country? But but for that, mm-hmm. I'm actually thinking myself like uh, we have global inflation, so I'm not sure mm-hmm. how much that that actually um, explains. Although you could have uh, capital flight where money is going offshore, and that actually leads to a lot of inflation because then the uh, currency tanks. And, and I think that's actually a large part of the story in many emerging market economies that we're seeing now, like Turkey. and uh... Yeah, I, I think, and you get, I mean, one of the, the things about raising interest rates in somewhere like the USA is that um, you, you may encourage that kind of capital flight, right? Uh, from from the poorer countries by by making it more attractive to invest in the USA. And I know that, Things like the Volcker shock, uh, for that reason, among others, had really negative effects on on the poorer economies of the world. Uh, so the Volcker shock, just for uh, reference, everybody was the 1980s when interest rates in the USA were set really, really high. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that is, I think, also indeed a worry, like especially for uh, countries like like Turkey now. Of course, big part of their inflation comes from their own uh, policy. But if if the USA hikes interest rates now, that I think you will see a massive uh, capital retrenchment or even more. And so that might actually paradoxically lead to a lot of uh, inflation in, in some of the sort of financial periphery countries, you mm. could say. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. actually, before we move on to the price controls, uh, there's actually this, I'm, I'm making a video on the economy of Afghanistan and I, I can't, talk too enthusiastically about it because there's absolutely a massive tragedy going on there right now, an absolute economic disaster. But what's very interesting is that they have this capital flight. They used to import much, much more than uh, they exported. And now all of the aid money is gone. But there, so I was like, oh, hyperinflation is in the, in the, in the cards for them. But what I, I found that uh, during this Oddlots podcast uh, interview with the, the central banker there, is what I found out is that they don't have a money printer. They outsourced money printing, the actual printing, and which is still important for them because they use a lot of cash, to a country that now, because of the sanctions, is not willing to extend that service anymore. And still they have double-digit inflation. And I think that's, that's, again, like a powerful signal that inflation is is different than just money printing. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. I, I didn't, <laughs> God, I didn't know that. I mean, yeah, I, I think... My understanding of, of hyperinflation is that, you know, usually the money printing tends to follow the inflation, right? It, yeah. it tends to come afterwards. And, and the, the, the problem is that there's a lot of 
things going on in the kind of real economy, if you want to call it that. Uh, and, you know, in the, you know, things like external debt, things like war, right? Things like political upheaval, uh, all of which you clearly have in Afghanistan. So that is, um, yeah, it's quite a powerful case study, I suppose, in that. Yeah, very sad case study, but but indeed, yeah. yeah. But it, it does, I think, you know, to give credit a little bit to the others or, or to sort of people who I argue with the most, um, it does give show, I think, that indeed um, printing money is a part of the hyperinflation story. It's just, you know, when we look at cases like Hungary, Weimar Germany, and now Lebanon, uh, it usually follows um, a, a massive run on the currency and it doesn't precede that. Yeah, I mean, it feeds into it, right? You know, you get you get like a, a vicious spiral. That that's the that's the issue. Um, so, I mean, whether this will help Afghanistan in some way, I guess remains to be seen. Will we find out in your video? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, Yui, price controls. There was also a massive, I, I think, a fairly vicious debate as well, especially on Twitter, among economists on price controls, personal attacks. Um, the whole shebang bang. What's your take on that? Oh God! I mean, price controls are like the kind of sacred cow. I think of uh, of like mainstream economics. Um, they they well, sorry, I should say the reverse. Opposition to price controls is the sacred cow of, of mainstream economics. I really think they can be good and they can be bad. And you know, a lot of economists have a kind of reflexive reaction to it. I mean, did you see that uh, midterm exam question at the University of Chicago? Yeah. So just to fill everybody in, um, there was an actual exam question at the University of Chicago, um, sort of stating a uh, professor, I think Bernie, uh, even they called it like Bernie after Bernie Sanders, at the University of Armhurst, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, is not a real economist and is suggesting, oh no, no, is suggesting price controls how would a real economist respond to it? Just just asking students, right? That that's that's yeah. what it said, right? Yeah, essentially, yeah. So this guy implied not to be a real economist is is suggesting price controls. How would a real economist respond to this? Yeah, yeah, Which, and that's you know, in, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's in reaction to an op-ed by um, a, a assistant professor, I think, from uh, University of Am Amherst, Amherst. Isabella Weber, who I think wrote a very interesting case study on, on China, actually. And so I think knows much more about price controls than typical economists, because in China, uh, I think they did use price controls quite extensively during their development. And she, she actually didn't go into too much detail. It was in The Guardian, so a bit of a left-leaning newspaper saying, uh, hey, actually, um, these corporations are making massive profits now with all of these supply shortages you know, maybe we should do price controls uh, and let them basically take the hit. And that's heresy. You, you can't say that. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I have to be honest. I actually think I didn't, um, I didn't read that original Guardian article. <laughs> I've, read, uh, I've read the fallout from it. But you know on Twitter when everyone's annoyed at something and you, you have a hard time figuring out what, uh, what the original thing was that set it all off. Yeah. Uh, I think I actually, I, I never got around to reading the original one. But um, I've read a lot of the debates since then. And uh, yeah, like there are perhaps some arguments for price controls that are, you know, targeted and carefully designed in specific sectors. I think especially if there's monopoly power. And by the way, somebody on my on my chat uh, sent um, asked something about monopoly power and prices. So I guess uh, that relates to this discussion we're having. But I, I think, um, yeah, if, if there's a great degree of monopoly power, uh, and you have quite high markups, then I can see price controls as a policy. And indeed, it's worth saying that is an implication of like fairly basic economics, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, if you're going to act like basic economics says you can't have price controls, I actually think you're, you're pretty much wrong because any theory of monopoly actually says that they're a good policy. So, yeah, yeah I, I think they can be a good policy. I do want to say I think they can be a bad policy, um, I know in the UK, we've had price caps on energy. Mm -hmm. And actually what's happened is that some of the companies, the gas and electric companies have started to go bust. Um, my own company, Bulb, has gone into administration. Uh, and I think you've got to be clear, you know, is it is it that prices are rising, right? 
but that's but because costs are rising. So if prices are rising because costs are rising, then a price control isn't what you want because you just you're just going to end up making the companies go bust. Yeah. But if prices are rising, but they're rising much more than costs or costs aren't rising at all, then you want to look at something like a price control. So I think I actually think that gas and electric uh, cap was an example of a bad policy. I think the problems with the UK's energy prices stem from like the actual infrastructure rather than the retail side. Mm-hmm. The retail companies don't make as much profit as you might think. And, you know, that's all acknowledging that energy prices are really high and it's hurting people, but I just think it's the wrong policy to pursue. So that's a case where I think price controls are bad, but there are plenty of other cases where I think think they can be um, effective. Yeah, but for inflation, uh, I'm wondering, like, if we look where where is a lot of the pressure coming from, uh, secondhand car market, mainly through, I, as I understood it, uh, chips, right, computer chips, the computer chip companies are are not in Western countries. Um, I wonder, sort of, how much uh, it's it's even realistic to to do that. Like you, you can put put price control on on car dealers, but you know they're they're not monopolies, so there it it wouldn't make sense. All right, and I don't know. I don't know. Like I read her uh, original article, but it was very brief. It, it was it was yeah. you know it wasn't. There wasn't too much substance in it. Um, then, in sort of a lot of the articles that came afterwards, there definitely was more substance to it. But but I didn't see anyone make a really good case. Like you know, what's a monopolist? Uh, Google, right? Oh, it's coming from search engine costs. No, no, no. I didn't see anyone sort of give a good uh, example of where inflation is then coming from, where price controls can actually do something. I'll tell you what the best argument I saw was about this. And it it actually, again, it relates to this issue of like short-term versus long-term policy we've been talking about. The best argument I saw about this was an article um, which talked talked about the uh, how monopoly is to blame for current inflation. And what it said was actually, it's not just about monopolies are raising prices. Mm -hmm. What's actually happened is that arguably monopolies have been responsible for some of the more stretched supply chains we've seen over the past over the past few years uh, over the past decade or, or more and that is kind of a much more indirect way uh that we've we've seen that their effects of inflation sorry I'm, I'm just trying to look for this uh, article that's why i'm stumbling a little bit yeah in the in the washington monthly sorry by paul glastris pretending monopoly has nothing to do with inflation right yeah so it, it mostly talks about this tissue of supply chains, the you know just-in-time supply chains, how stretched they are, and how that's a policy that's been pursued by monopolies who have control over the entire supply chain. There's not enough competition. There's not enough redundancy and contingency, and that has fed into the supply chain bottlenecks, which has itself fed into inflation. Mm. But but isn't like there's not enough redundancy? Isn't that a, a consequence of competition? Like, wouldn't you expect there to be redundancy if if there were monopolies? I think it's basically a, an issue of cutting costs, right? So, you know, any parts of the supply chain which are deemed to be redundant by a monopoly might uh, might be cut, right? So they can like maximize their efficiency and get the most out of what they've got. So, I mean, at least this was the this is the argument of the article. And it's, you know, outsourced things and it's taken things like, I think it says the manufacturing capacity for computer chips, um, for example, has been has been offshored and therefore, you know, again, more more vulnerable to global trends. Um, and we don't have the capacity at home or people in the US don't as well as abroad. So mm. I think that was the thing. Mm. It was this kind of uh, cutting costs and maximizing efficiency by monopolies. I mean, whether competition would solve that automatically or whether it would require require a more active policy i'm not sure right um, but yeah, i think yeah. that was a that was a, a the argument yeah okay so you could then uh, shield like it's basically arguing for more national industries um, which do compete with each other but perhaps like behind you know some small trade barriers so that they 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 will have some buffers um, like they don't like because like if there's full competition that that companies won't have big buffers against events that that don't typically happen right 
No, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting point you raise. I mean, there's there's almost an argument that some kind of like regu- regulated oligopoly um, is is the optimum there, right? Uh, because uh, then you mm. don't have the kind of yeah outright competition where mm. there's there's no margins um, and no room for you know redundancies, as you said. But you don't have the monopoly either, where redundancies are cut because the monopoly doesn't want them and has the power to. Yeah. Hey, um, maybe we can, you know, tie tied into this. I, I I think I saw today and yesterday, even the Bank of England governor arguing for price controls, but not on companies, but rather on uh, labor. In the sense that mm-hmm. he was arguing, uh, hey, maybe uh, people should uh, not demand this page cut, uh, uh, pay rise, uh, if mm-hmm. we want to get, if we don't want to get into this wage uh, price uh, hiking spiral. Did you see that as well? Yeah, I did see that. What do, what do you think of it? No, so I I, I saw this um, response from uh, Martin Sandbu, who is one of my favorite columnists in the Financial Times, and I thought he was you know right on the mark in the sense that he said like this is so clearly a hypocrisy in the thinking of the Bank of England, which you know they you know not always, but I think this sort of um, group of you know the people in charge now are fairly sort of orthodox and so like against price controls typically um, but wage controls you know they don't acknowledge that this is also price controls yeah yeah absolutely no I completely agree with that uh, I, I think and to be honest like that it's not just that comment is it right it's like for the past couple of decades or, or three decades it's been all about managing inflation seemingly by managing labor right and moderating wage demands through interest rate rises and i think that is i mean we talk about planning right that is planning of a kind and it's planning for labor so yeah yeah, it, it does seem to be hypocritical and you know it's worth saying that having wages wage growth outstrip inflation for a little bit and having essentially Labour's share of income rising after a period in which it has actually been falling for a while wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world. But I think it, it's, it comes back to, you know, what mechanisms do you have for managing these things? And I think things like, you know, sectoral bargaining, um, which did we discuss that in the video? I think that might have been mentioned in the video. Sectoral bargaining, um, yeah, what, what we discussed is that we didn't um, expect this, this massive pressure in labor markets right away because labor unions don't really have the power, the, the yeah. sort of power anymore that they used to. <clears throat> and that, that was yeah. the case in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. So the, uh, the fall of labor unions, yeah. So I think, you know, if you take somewhere like Germany, my understanding of the German economy is just that they, you know, they have... Um, Unions which are kind of at the table in terms of wage negotiations across entire sectors, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. that and the, and the unions themselves kind of they ensure wage rises. And I think Germany's performance in terms of medium real wages has been very much better than, for example, the USA or UK. I think they've been less stagnant there. So they're ensuring there are real wage rises, but they are, you know, not not doing it so much that they're allowing a wage price spiral to set in, and that's mm. the kind of thing that I would like to see, right? But, but uh, I'm, more I'm, generally, I'm afraid it's the other way around, uh, UE, in the sense that uh, Germany and the Netherlands as well have this very strong system of uh, partly labor unions, but but also they negotiate sort of very centrally in a very centrally central way with the mm. government. And yeah. what the Netherlands and, and Germany famously did uh, like 20 years ago is, is moderate wages. Uh, and that's why they're now so competitive within Europe, because they have artificially repressed their wages in an ironic twist of fate through yeah. the labor unions. So what do real wages in Germany look like then? Have they stagnated over the past sort of 30 years or so? Yeah, I, I think so, and especially compared to uh, other European countries. So, you know, Germany used to be the sick man of Europe uh, not that long ago, mm. like in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s. And, you know, I know this a little bit because in the Netherlands they did the same thing. They, they, they did this active policy of wage moderation, like you won't demand 
weight increases that much, and that will increase our competitive position. And 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 you have seen since then. Like I, I'm not sure if the econometrics have found a, a super significant causal relationship, but but I think likely. Uh, but definitely, you've seen that Germany and the Netherlands, since having implemented that, have gotten this huge trade surpluses, especially also compared to to other European countries. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I stand corrected. But I think I would like to see, you know, Labour to have a seat at the at the table in terms of more centralised mechanisms that allow kind of, you know, moderate wage increases, but, you know, with without um, you know, allowing wage price spirals to set in. I mean, it, I think this is the thing, right? When you get comments from the Bank of England chief like that, it's kind of, there's, a, there's an element of condescension and, you know, stop asking for wage rises when actually Labour, you know, doesn't have a seat at the table, right, necessarily, and doesn't have as much power over these things, which I think it, it annoys people, right? So if you allowed Labour to have more of a say, then, you know, perhaps they would kind of agree to moderate their wage demands. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it makes it more democratic, right? Yeah, and... It is true that also in the Netherlands, I, I can't speak for Germany on this front, but uh, labor power has definitely declined. It's just that they, um, they do still do the negotiations. And I think that there has been this very interesting dynamic all over the world, basically, that sort of left-wing parties have, and labor unions as well, have themselves in the late 90s become rather neoliberal and so have willingly... Uh, sort of, you know, given away their own share of GDP, basically, right? So, so that might, uh, might, you know, help explain why you do have these stronger labor unions, but they actually ended up negotiating wages down rather than up. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to solve that, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, but it, it could, one other explanation um, that I can think of is that it has to do with the structure of the European Union itself, because in the end, um, it has helped uh, laborers in Germany and the Netherlands to get ahead um, of their Southern European counterparts, because, you know, we have certainly done better than Southern Europe in the Euro crisis. So, so maybe it was rational after all of them to do that, but... I guess we should should get into that uh, deeper in a, in another discussion uh, while playing the, the eurozone crisis. Players. Yeah, it might be too much. <laughs> I, but uh, so I think we've now, you know, in my idea, I think we have discussed the two major um, strands of the public discussion that we didn't discuss in the video, right? Price controls and um, and MMT. And, and whether or not it was right or, or, or not. And we have sort of shifted our positions a little bit, but you know, I at least had in the thumbnail this very provocative or very somewhat provocative statement, were we wrong? Were we wrong on inflation? What, what do you think? A little bit underestimated degree to which inflation uh, would remain and some of the problems also Failed to predict Omicron as well. I think was a, was a big part of that, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, I was I was certainly wrong about that. Maybe too sanguine, but the focus of the conversation about inflation. I mean, I don't know how many times you hear the term supply chain now compared to how many times you heard it before. I think that we were right on that. We were right to focus on that, and that continues to be the subject of discussion. And I'm really interested just to know, you know, to see what more we learn about supply chains, because we've learned so much in the past few months, the past six months or, or year, we've learned so much about them that we didn't know before. And, you know, what kind of policies that people, whether they're MMTs or otherwise, come up with uh, to try and manage supply chains better? Because I do think that's a really, really crucial thing going forward, you know, through the pandemic and, and with the climate crisis as well. And I think this also ties into a trend that was already there in uh, economics where economists start to pay more and more attention to the details of the economy because basically like all the macro models, the simplistic macro models failed, right? Like the central bank, New Keynesian model, um, really relying heavily on the labor uh, Phillips curve transition mechanism of inflation, that failed. The money printing model failed after the after the 80s i think right like all the, the sort of big simple models failed and and there was already this trend in economics to to dive a little bit deeper into what you know the economy is a massive complex system 
Uh, and I think this this plays into that, right? We've again seen, okay, we we don't we haven't not many economists predicted this. And so we need to understand better where it's coming from. And I think that was also partly the idea of doing the video with you, where we have really sort of highlighted different channels. And then we can all, and I, I see lots of people in the chat actually doing that, fervently disagree about which channel is stronger. But we can at least agree that these channels are all a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Any... Any economics that is more focused on institutional detail and what's happening in the real world, you know, I can be convinced of either side on inflation if you give me like a good argument that is based in reality, right? As opposed to some of these um, models, which maybe aren't always so useful. Yeah. And, and before concluding, what I wanted to ask you is like, what I've also seen is like lots of people saying, hey, but what will inflation do next? And will they raise? raise interest rates. And there, what I wanted to ask you, or at least talk about uh, with you, is I think what people mm, don't always understand about economics, and that's partially our own fault, or at least the economists uh, that you have sort of always argued against, um, and that is that we pretend that economics is like physics. Whereas in this sense, when it comes to prediction, I think it's more like being a political commentator in the sense that, you know, you can say, oh, there will be a war with Russia and Ukraine. But everybody knows that a political commentator may be super good, but still can be wrong because there's just so many factors. Like one, that we don't know. And two, there's complexity. There's this interaction between governments and private sector, and which is extremely difficult to predict. Yeah, I think it's the paradox because people always want predictions, but then obviously... A lot of the time they're wrong and then people, you know, get annoyed with with <laughs> experts and pundits for being wrong about them. Um, but I think, you know, the important thing is maybe we should maybe we should do less predicting. I don't know. Maybe we should do less predicting. But the important thing is, you know, whether the analysis that you use to make the prediction is, you know, clear and, and sensible and reasonable rather than the prediction itself, in my opinion. Yeah, right. And then like, if I can use that analogy again, you can say, okay, as an expert or as someone who has studied, maybe I shouldn't say expert, but as someone who has studied this uh, for, for some time, I think the, the chance of war between you know, Ukraine and Russia, like, this is hyper, I haven't studied this, uh, uh, is 70%. And then obviously you could, it could still happen because you know, 70%, right? And I think maybe we can phrase um, our inflation forecast in this way as well. Right, so the the chance that that this is transitory, I would say, uh, in the sense that will end fairly shortly after the pandemic, I would still say is seventy five percent. Would you be willing to to do a prediction like that as well? I mean, <laughs> after this, just saying we shouldn't do predictions, no. But this is a but this is a more right? hedged prediction. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds about right to me. Um, I think. <laughs> Yeah, it, if the pandemic is over, I guess it it prompts the question of what it means for the pandemic to be over. But I mean, you could say, for example, by the end of the year, will inflation kind of be half of what it is now? I'd say, yeah, there's like a 70%, 75% chance of that. And and then just one more to, to really end. Um, should central banks and governments, like both separately, stop Stimulus, like crisis level stimulus. No, I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think they should. But I do think that they should basically... What, one of the things in defense of MMT is, is they said, well, the stimulus that was, was uh, delivered was a crisis stimulus, right? It was just, let's just throw money at everything to stop the bottom from falling out of the world, right? Which is fair enough. But it wasn't designed with inflation in mind. So I do think I am a big fan of active fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, but I do think they should in the future on an ongoing basis be designed with inflation in mind. Okay, yeah. So I would argue there, I would prefer uh, monetary tightening. So an interest rate hike and or um, stopping quantitative easing. But large, not necessarily because I think it will do that much to inflation because there's such a huge supply chain and, and what I call demand shift component to that. But because financial markets have risen so much that I wonder you know, if that's 
not you know too risky or like a sugar sort of high policy um but then to to mitigate that uh, let's continue doing a little bit of the fiscal crisis support for especially for the people who have been hit by covid without you know and they couldn't do anything about that right so maybe extend some of the support to um the event or industry or you know that's yeah. that's where i'm leaning to yeah i i think if if monetary stimulus has inflated asset prices then and and you know house prices and, and things like that then it might be prudent to to contract qe especially interest rates like the base rate i'm a little bit more concerned about because of things like mortgage costs for you know poor families but certainly i would agree on on qe all right, excellent. Um, sh- shall we leave it at that, just to you know, in the interest of time? Um... Yeah. Could I say one more thing to my chat? Of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and well, I guess everybody, this is going to be uploaded. I have a channel where it's not going to be listed, it's not going to be public, but it is going to be uploaded to my uh, playlist where uh, I have my streams. So don't worry about that. If you missed it, uh, you haven't been able to watch it, whatever, it's going to be there. Excellent. And I'm going to actually uh, uh, try to pick out some clips of what we discussed and upload those on a second channel for people who don't want to sit through uh, like uh, a one hour conversation. Yeah, half of which was technical difficulties. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite half. Yeah, but we we should definitely talk again, uh, UE, uh, and maybe uh, even while uh, I'm uh, completely eviscerating uh, your your economy in Age of Empires 4. (laughs) Those are fighting words, right? I can't wait for that. All right, take care. And um, yeah, from from my yeah. chat, I'm I'm just going to stick around a little bit to to answer some uh, some questions. So okay. see you. Thank you so much for this, uh, UE. Uh, I really learned a lot from you, and I'm I'm very happy that uh, that you contributed to this uh, this inflation video. Likewise, thanks very much for having me on. Right, take care. Thank you. Whew. All right, man. Chat. What what have I missed? What do you think of this uh, this analysis on, on our sites? So Pundokcat is asking, what are the dangers and reality of asset price inflation? So so the dangers are mainly a a, a bust of asset prices, and then you can get this sort of um, vicious cycle of people who have borrowed against rising asset prices. Asset prices then go down and they cannot repay their borrowings and so they have to default and so they have to spend all of their income to repay that debt and cannot spend that in the economy. So, you know, that hurts, you know, just working people, uh, shop owners, business owners, everybody. I did a video on this, why, I've renamed it a couple of times, why um, private commercial bank money creation is dangerous. What do you think about just taking the pain? Is it better? Yeah, like I think ideally you would want to. The the, the Keynesian idea is stimulate in um, <clears throat> in a recession, and then uh, do contractionary policy. And I think that was also the MMT idea that we discussed in um, in a boom. And now the economy is booming, you know, somewhat. I can understand why policymakers are afraid. Uh, I think this is the first recession where in a long time where where they have been rather Keynesian and to their credit we haven't seen a massive recession which I I expected at first Um, but we're now also seeing inflation so maybe uh, maybe the demand pool uh, channel is stronger at least it is in line with what we're seeing now and then should we take the pain yeah I mean ideally you would you would then do contractionary policy at some point. But ideally, you wouldn't have to do it like like <laughs> super heavily, right? So ideally, you just cool it down and it would stabilize. But that, that's very difficult. What are your, from Noah, what are your views on the fiscal room to respond to recession induced by rate hikes? Yeah, so there is some difficulty there. I think if you uh, rate do raise that... <laughs> hike interest rates, then you you make fiscal policy more difficult, right? Because you also um, have higher interest rates on government debt. But that really, then I think it really matters sort of how big your economy is. Like if you're a very small open economy, then you have less room to, to spend more money because you, you're also very much dependent on 
foreigners uh, and how how confident they are in your currency, and hence you know not selling your currency. But uh, if you're a big uh, currency area, then I think that sh- that should work. Like like for example, just to speak for in the Netherlands, which has like I think still very negative real rates in the sense on their government debt in the sense that inflation is much much higher than they have to pay on government debt. If let's say that the the central bank hikes rates one percent, you know they still have negative real rates. So I think then the Dutch government still has a lot of room to 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 do stimulus if necessary. Do you think that fiscal stimulus and monetary policy was more targeted to individuals and industries, which would have been hardest hit by the pandemic? Would we have had as high inflation? Yeah, then it really depends where you think inflation comes from. I think the the fiscal policies um, in what I heard about it in the US were less targeted. Like everybody got these stimulus checks, right? That didn't happen in Europe. We didn't have that. Only businesses uh, that got into trouble due to Corona could get stimulus, at least in the Netherlands. And what you did have is a lot of lot more automatic stabilizers, what they call automatic stabilizers. Meaning, you know, for example, uh, unemployment benefits. So uh, people who were fired would then just receive more unemployment benefits. Or you had the schemes where uh, employers who were about to fire someone were sort of given an incentive financially not to do so. So they were really targeted. And now you do actually also in Europe see more inflation uh, you know, fairly close to the US, more than, than we might have expected if, if it was just blanket stimulus. Europe did far less stimulus than the US and it still has rather high inflation. But what could explain that is that Europe is much more exposed to energy prices at the moment, specifically gas from Russia um, and the global gas market. The US has more of its own gas market and a large part of the, the energy price story was China shifting from coal to gas uh, and that that made gas prices go up a lot and that hit Europe and it didn't really hit America if you if you look into the data there. So that might explain part of it. Tim says, do you think 5% inflation is benign? No, well, I mean, depends on what benign is. Huh? Um, I mentioned in my talk with learning economics that I don't think it's, it, I'm not in favor of, of high inflation and I, I think 5 and 4% is also pretty high. People do notice that in their spending. And I just think if you have a unit of account, it should be stable. Just because that makes it easier for everybody to, to do their calculations. But there isn't, I don't think there's too much good research on this. So, so maybe I should look into that more. <laughs> we have an MMT fan saying I should read Hudson. Maybe I will invite um, Hudson for a chat or live, on a live stream at some point or Stephanie Kelton. Because I should know more about MMT if I'm going to talk about it. And the same actually goes for, for those of you who are more on the Austrian side. I would like to invite a couple there. I, I think someone in one of the comments on other videos already did some suggestions. Uh, I will look into that as well. I think that would be interesting to, to explore you know, ideas from, uh, from multiple sites. Awesome. I think these uh, are, there are not really that many questions coming in hot anymore. So I think we'll leave it at that. I'll uh, grab dinner. Thank you all so much for joining. Consider subscribing to the second channel where we'll upload clips. I'm working on several videos at the moment. One about Afghanistan, one about Turkey is coming up. Um, I'm also working on a quantitative easing uh, video. I hope to become more consistent this year with uploading than last year. But it's a struggle since I'm still a little bit in the process of moving uh, and teaching. All right. Take care, everybody.